0: the St. Thomas the Doubter podcast. My name is Mark, and I'm the pastor of the congregation of St. Thomas the Doubter, an independent ecumenical congregation for all people that embraces holy doubt, the importance of grace, and the power of solidarity in community. You can find out more about our congregation online at www.stthomascongregation.org. This podcast offers the scripture lessons and sermons from our Sunday evening services. In the future, it may also be a place for conversation and discussion on various issues of religion and faith. This is episode 12, and is from the service for June 11th, 2023. The scripture lesson is Matthew 9, 9-13, and 18-26, through 26, and the sermon is entitled Laughter. We hope you enjoy the episode. Tonight's scripture lesson comes to us from the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 9, verses 9 through 13 and 18 through 26. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. While he was saying these things to them, suddenly a leader of the synagogue came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus got up and followed him with his disciples. Then suddenly a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. When Jesus came to the leader's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making the commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl got up, and the report of this spread throughout that district. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So those of you who have been a part of our weekly Bible study, and probably in this setting as well, have likely heard me talk about the relationship between the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels because... They share a point of view, that is, they tell more or less the same story with some variations. And scholars have worked worked at trying to figure out what the relationship is between those three gospels. The consensus is that Mark was the first gospel written sometime in the late 60s or very early 70s, and that Matthew and Luke used Mark as their primary source, adding in various teaching materials from an unknown, from a source, likely an oral tradition of Jesus's teachings and sayings. And because of that, Matthew and Luke's accounts tend to be longer than Mark's, tend to provide additional detail, tend to provide additional things that Jesus might have said, as they use Mark as the foundation for their narrative. But this story, interestingly, feels the other way around Whereas in Mark's Gospel, the story of raising the synagogue leader's daughter and the woman with the hemorrhage covers some 23 verses in the fifth chapter, this account covers only nine, in fact a very economical nine. In Mark's Gospel, There is something that we encounter called the Markan sandwich that is a phenomenon in Mark's gospel where he will start a story, interrupt it with another story, and then conclude it with the original story. And this is one of those stories. Jesus has been invited and asked to come heal the daughter of, um, of the synagogue leader, and while on the way there, a woman suffering a hemorrhage. Uh, touches his his garment and is healed. Now, some of the details in Mark's account are missing from this account, namely the name of the synagogue leader who was referred to as Jairus in Mark's account. The entire conversation that Jesus has with the woman who has to introduce herself, Jesus in Mark's gospel is not sure who has touched him. And she comes forward and says, I just thought if only I could touch your cloak and he rewards her faith, Um, also the detail that she was healed as soon as she touched him um, because of her faithfulness and that he felt the power go out from him. And we also miss the part where, um, where Jairus had asked Jesus to come because his daughter was ill, and when he gets there, he finds out that she has already died. Now, he says the same thing um, about she's only sleeping and he goes in and we do miss in Matthew's version the words that Jesus says to to this little girl um, in Mark's version we were told that he says and he provides the Aramaic little girl get up and she gets up and she is then Jesus says give her something to eat so there's some details that are missing, curiously, from Matthew's rendering of this story found originally in Mark, but there is one detail that both accounts have in common, and that is the laughter. In both accounts, when Jesus comes upon the scene of Jairus's house and finds that the little girl has died, he responds, she is not dead, she is only sleeping, whereupon everyone laughs at him. Now, commentators on Mark's gospel generally assume that the reason he said she's sleeping is because in Mark's gospel, Jesus has a reluctance to let people know that he's performed miracles. In fact, he often tells the person whom he's helped, don't tell anyone about this. You know, go show yourself to the priest, go whatever you have to do, but don't say anything. And of course then the people run around and tell everyone Here, however, there's no such injunction, so the reason for him saying she's only sleeping is not as clear. But nevertheless, he says it, and nevertheless, he is mocked for it. They laugh at him because he has dared to suggest she has life yet in her. Now, early Christians often used the euphemism to be asleep as a euphemism for death, In fact, this is long past early Christians. Even up until recent centuries, this was a commonly encountered uh, euphemism for dying. Um, And some of the writings of Paul will often refer to those who have fallen asleep. Now, part of that is the usual avoidance of the term for death, but part of it is also, on a from a Christian level, this belief that. When we die, we simply are sleeping until the resurrection, when we will be raised to new life. So it reflects something of that Christian theology. But it is not intended that way here. At least, if Jesus is intending it that way, that message is lost on those he mentions to. They think he's referring literally to having fallen asleep and laugh at him for not knowing the difference between sleeping and death. As an aside, I had a colleague who told me once that he had been in a Christian cemetery and seen on a gravestone, born 1814, fell asleep 1885, and thought how terrible it was that this poor man had fallen asleep and his family had buried him. I had to let him know that fallen asleep was a metaphor for dying. But this part about Jesus being laughed at is an important one because it shows the contrast between the folly of the world and the folly of the kingdom of God. Paul often makes reference to this, this idea that the world's wisdom is not our wisdom. It's not God's wisdom in any way. That what the world values as powerful is not how God is known as powerful. What the world thinks is glorious is not how God is glorious. What the world thinks is wise is not what God thinks is wise. In fact, often these things will appear to be weak, inglorious, and foolish. But nevertheless, they are of God and therefore evidence a deeper wisdom. There is even an instance in the letter, of the first letter to the Corinthians where Paul is scolding his congregation for, for their presumption that they have it all figured out and that they are already living in the resurrection and that they have already been perfected in everything they strive for. And he says to them, you know, oh, we've been fools for the sake of Christ, but you, you're wise in Christ. It's it's sometimes a shame that we don't read just how many of Paul's writings are dripping with irony and sarcasm. And he talks about being a fool for Christ as being faithful to a gospel that sometimes appears foolish to the world. But Jesus has no problem being foolish or being laughed at. Jesus understands that there are truths at work that will always seem ridiculous to the conventional wisdom. The idea of a crucified Messiah was one of those ideas, an idea so laughable that it took the resurrection to convince his own disciples that he was the Messiah, Because of course a Messiah doesn't get crucified. That's ridiculous. Until he was raised and they had to wrestle with the fact that their expectations for what a Messiah was and what had happened to the one they now know to be the Messiah were not the same. There's always going to be an element of Christian faith that will seem ridiculous. Forgiving your enemies is ridiculous. Loving your enemies is ridiculous. Offering grace and mercy to people who don't deserve it is ridiculous. And whenever you raise these ideas in public, people will laugh at them. Oh, they'll say how lovely they are to hear about them in church, but actually doing them? That's ridiculous. And they'll laugh. But there's something about that laughter that is a vindication a vindication of the very idea that's being proposed. Whenever I read this now, I can't help but think of a passage in Dickens' masterpiece, A Christmas Carol. A Christmas Carol is probably the Dickens piece that is sold short uh, only because people think of it as this cute little story about ghosts and Ebenezer Scrooge and past, present, and future and all of that but dickens has written a deeply theological political social commentary in this beautiful christmas narrative and one of them at one of the points made at the end after scrooge has had his conversion he becomes a new person he becomes Charitable and outgoing and compassionate, he becomes a good employer to Bob Cratchit and and a friend and caretaker to his family, providing life and hope for, for Tiny Tim and for his whole struggling family. And there's this one paragraph that comes in after this where Dickens notes, some people laughed to see the alteration in him. But he let them laugh, and little heeded them, for he was wise enough to know that nothing ever happened on this globe for good at which some people did not have their fill of laughter in the outset. And, knowing that such as these would be blind anyway, he thought it quite as well that they should wrinkle up their their eyes in grins as have the malady in less attractive forms. His own heart laughed, And that was quite enough for him. Being willing to be laughed at is one of the requirements of discipleship. When Jesus said to the disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when people persecute you and revile you for my name's sake, he meant when you are willing to let go of your reputation, when you are willing to be mocked, when you are willing to be made fun of, For daring to proclaim the hope that is the gospel, for daring to lift up the message that takes the world and turns it on its head, then you're one of mine. Blessed are you, happy are you, because it's at that moment that you truly are living out the path of discipleship that I have called you to There's a lot about the gospel that calls us outside our comfort zone. And nobody is comfortable being laughed at. We like it when they laugh with us. Or, as Robin Williams once joked, they're not laughing at you, they're laughing near you. But we don't like being the object of derision, of ridicule. And yet... So much about the gospel seems foolish to the world and will seem foolish because it goes against the rules of power and wealth and status and oppression and greed and whatever other powers dominate our world. The way of the gospel seems ridiculous and worthy of derision. But when they laugh... We know we're on the right track. In fact, there's a quote, it's usually attributed to Gandhi, but it's not actually a Gandhi quote. But it was said by someone from the MLK Center, or sorry, the, the Gandhi Center in, in Rochester, New York. And the quote is First, they ignore you. That is, when you're in a movement for change and justice in the world, first, they ignore you. Next, they laugh at you, then they fight you, then we win. (laughs) And so that laughter is an essential part of knowing that you're on the right track, that you have said something that has earned the derision of the powers that be, that has earned the derision of the structures of the world, that they've laughed. So we take heart. And we join in the laughter, as Scrooge did, letting our hearts laugh, knowing that if they're going to laugh and deride us, they might as well do so with a smile on their face than wrinkle up their faces in some other way. It's the path that Christ calls us to, and the path that can change the world. Thank you for listening to this episode of the St. Thomas the Doubter podcast. For more information about the podcast and our congregation, visit www.stthomascongregation.org. Thanks again, and we hope you will join us again soon.